Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It all started on a night in December. Executives at Carlyle Group, which is one of the world's biggest private equity funds with about $200 billion under management, were working late into the night to sign this deal. This deal would be another in a relatively recent change in strategy at Carlyle. Not only did they think it was an attractive deal, but they thought that it would be one of the longest lasting deals that Carlyle had signed in the history of the firm. They were going to take a 10% stake in this Amex global travel business in a deal that would value the company at $5 billion. Clearly, the timing for that could hardly have been worse. This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene. On today's episode, we're looking at a long-term bet made by private equity giant Carlyle right before the crisis, a bet that's since been cut short thanks to coronavirus. We'll also ask what the pandemic could mean for dealmaking in years to come. Mark Vandeveld covers U.S. private capital for the FT. Now, you can't talk about a travel business without talking about the airline business. And even in the best of times, airlines generate fairly slim returns. The airline business famously has never made money on aggregate for investors. It seems that airlines are locked in this cycle where in the good times, they tend to buy too many planes and start running too many routes. And they compete with each other for custom by cutting prices and offering perks. And then in the bad times, they find they've got all these planes and nobody who wants to travel anywhere. And uh, they suffer tremendous losses and fire lots of people and shut down lots of routes. And on many occasions in American history over the past few decades, go bankrupt and have to restructure. So all of this is just by way of saying the airlines are perpetually locked in this battle for market share. The only way that they can fill more seats on their planes is by poaching customers from other airlines. Which is where American Express, known for its slick green, platinum and black status credit cards, found an opportunity. It's called Amex Global Business Travel. In this perpetual battle for market share among the airlines, global business travel, this Amex business, turned out to be a really useful ally because their customers are some of the most coveted travel clientele you could imagine on the planet. Executives who work for really big multinational companies travel a lot, move between offices within the same company all the time, go pitching to you know business meetings all over the world, maybe just go on junkets. They're terrific repeat customers for the airlines to have. Amex Global Business Travel did what the likes of Expedia and Travelocity did, which was book tickets for clients. But it could do something that a lot of other consumer-focused travel agencies could not. So every time they sold a plane ticket, they were charging the multinational company the price of the air ticket, the airfare, and the airline was being charged an incentive fee for steering this corporate custom towards them. So if you're going to be a travel agency, this is the way to do it. You get to charge people for plane tickets and you get to charge airlines for selling plane tickets. And that's what this business did. 
Global business travel was lucrative, lucrative enough that Amex spun off the company in 2014 with a strong pitch to potential investors. Think about it this way. As airlines were jostling for market share, they were paying these incentive fees to the travel agency. And if the travel agency were able to sign up more and more corporate clients, perhaps that incentive fee could get higher and higher, meaning an ever-increasing steady stream of cash for the investors. This is where Carlisle comes in. Amex Global Business Travel was supposed to fit into a, a new investment style for Carlisle, one that was much longer term, would involve holding on to the companies that you had bought for maybe a decade or more. This was fairly new for the private equity industry, which to many people had been associated with the idea of the corporate raider. Carlisle grew up with the private equity industry. It was founded in the 1980s. This is when private equity shops were buying companies cheaply, putting considerable debt on them, and then selling them for a huge profit. It was common for private equity firms to double, triple, quadruple their money on businesses that they'd only bought two or three or four years earlier and flipping them fast. The goal of this new way of investing wasn't to triple return in the span of just a few years. Instead, this new strategy at Carlyle was meant to position private equity as a long-term partner, offering stability for investors in an increasingly active market. It's honestly quite difficult these days to earn three or four times your money in just a few years. And that's because this market has become much more competitive. Henry Kravis was the first to really do it at any scale. Lots of people got in on this act. Stephen Schwartzman set up Blackstone, now the biggest alternative asset manager in the world. David Rubenstein set up Carlyle, also a very big asset manager. There's Apollo. Uh, and, th and these are just the really big guys. Beneath them, there are umpteen billion dollar or ten billion dollar private equity firms, and they're all largely chasing the same deals. And that means they have to pay more when they buy a company. And it means that it's much harder to put into practice this mantra of buying things cheap and selling them much more expensively a few years down the road. So for everybody, particularly at the top of this market, people like Carlisle and Blackstone and KKR, they're all thinking, well, what can we do that's different from this playbook where we have an edge? One of the things that they've come up with is this idea, well, we have a bunch of investors people like you know, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds who need to invest over decades, who will trust us perhaps to be good long-term custodians of capital and companies. So it's really in their quest to grow their businesses, to have more funds that are paying management fees to them, that are paying the bills. They've been coming up with new styles of investment. And this is one that Carlisle and others have thought promising. Which brings us back to that night in December, when the papers were being drawn up for Carlisle to buy a stake in the Amex Travel Group through the firm's long-term investment fund. Carlisle was going to pay $450 million, roughly. It was going to get a 10% stake in this business, and it promised to hold the stake for 10 years. And in that time, it hoped that Amex GBT would become a much better business. You could never call it a plan with these things, they're too uncertain, but a hope that the agency could grow quite dramatically by buying other businesses. And if it grew, then it would become even more important to the airlines who would pay even higher incentives. So this might become a really much more profitable business than it already was. And then the pandemic hit. It's hard to remember this now, but I think the moment when the complacent view 
that nothing terribly bad was going to happen to the American economy. The moment that view died. That was around February 26th. That was the day stock markets suffered some particularly sharp falls. And that was the day that the CDC first said that it was just inevitable. It was a, it was a question of when, not if, coronavirus disruption would, would arrive in the US. And within hours of that, Carlyle was reconsidering the shape of this deal. The first thing that happened was they seemed to have been looking for ways to move some of the risk from them, the equity holders, Carlyle and other shareholders, and onto the people who were providing debt. So this was a kind of measured initial response that reflected the fact that something bad was changing in the world, but didn't revise the very fundamental elements of the deal. They were still planning to buy this business, but they were figuring out how they could do it in a way that subjected themselves to a bit less risk. In other words, lenders typically have the ability to recall a loan or take other emergency measures in some circumstances, say a significant hit to earnings. So Carlisle was negotiating with the banks to try to win some concessions that could prove extremely valuable in a crisis. It wanted to exclude the impact of coronavirus from the calculation that determines when the lenders can take emergency measures. For Amex Global Business Travel, that's quite a bad thing because so much of their revenue comes from selling plane tickets and nobody wanted a plane ticket anymore and hotels were closed and planes were lined up on on runways and not going anywhere and if you looked at the travel tickets that they sold a measure called total transaction value the, the dollar value of all of the tickets that they arranged for business travel customers if you compare this march to march 2019 that number fell 86 percent wow um their revenue in march compared to 2019 fell 70%. So this was, as a person running a business, these are numbers that you hope never to see. At the end of March, Amex GBT circulated a updated financial forecast that reflected the impact of the travel shutdown and the coronavirus fallout. And we don't know the specifics of what was in that, but executives at Carlisle have described it as shocking. A week later, they all got on the phone and they discussed these forecasts. And then two days later, Tyler Zuckham, who's the, uh, the guy at Carlisle who runs this long-term investment fund, phoned up his counterparts at GBT and told them, we, Carlisle, believe that a material adverse event has occurred. Within weeks, the investors that were selling their stake filed a lawsuit against Carlisle and its co-investor in the deal. They wanted the court to force the buyers to close on the deal. Shortly after that, Carlisle filed its own lawsuit asking the court to do something quite different, which was to declare that, in fact, the deal was off because this adverse event had occurred. Now, deal documents tend to be a bit complicated, particularly to those of us who aren't lawyers. The same goes if you buy a house. You would think that this is a a relatively easily described trade, but the paperwork stretches into 10 or 20 pages. Well, For deals like this, the paperwork stretches into hundreds of pages and the kinds of things that are in it, there's a description of exactly what it is that you're buying, which, you know, a business is kind of an abstract thing. So describing it in legalese is actually a hard and tortured process. And then part of that description amounts to saying, you know, what the revenues and the profits of the business have been and what they're expected to be in the future. There will also be some list of scenarios in which the deal is allowed to be called off. And these are heavily negotiated and they're different in each case, but the kinds of things you can imagine, you know, um, 
if you're buying a movie theater chain and before the deal closes, something happens like the states in which this movie theater chain operates outlaw movie theaters, then the deal <laughs> will be off, that kind of thing. These are called material adverse events. Now, in the case of Carlisle and the investors in Amex GBT, it's a disagreement over whether or not coronavirus constitutes a material adverse event. So the way this contract is written, it has things in it like, look, if things go very badly, there's a, if there's a material adverse event, then the deal's off. And except um, if this adversity is caused by something like profound general changes in social conditions then that doesn't count as a material adverse event unless it disproportionately affects this company more than other travel companies. Right. Or if the law changes, that doesn't count as a material adverse event. And similarly, if there's a big change in economic conditions, so there's a recession or something like that, well, that doesn't count as a material adverse event either unless we're the only ones hit by it. And so the reason this argument has broken out is because the sellers say, well, what's happening in this COVID-19 crisis is a consequence of changes in the laws. There's this lockdown. People aren't allowed to um, do many of the things that they were allowed to do two or three months ago. There's a change in social conditions and there's a change in economic conditions, namely the mother of all recessions. And all of these things are hitting everybody, not just us. And so the contract is very clear. The sellers say this doesn't count as a material adverse event. Carlisle's argument is it absolutely does. It's a serious adverse change. Just look at what's happened to your revenue. Obviously, this is a material adverse event. And there's nothing in the contract that says if something bad happens, but it's a, caused by a pandemic, that doesn't count as a materially adverse event. And if we'd all meant to exclude pandemics from the material adverse event clause, then we would have written in the word pandemic and we didn't. <laughs> that means something. I think everybody agrees at this point that the deal is dead. For Amex's travel business, the deal was attached to about a billion dollars of debt financing, and that's now falling through at what is an ominous moment for the travel industry. Meanwhile, for Carlisle, getting out of a long-term investment in a travel agency at a time like this will likely save them some money and some headaches. But the collapse of the investment kind of complicates Carlisle's plans to show that private equity firms can be a long-term partner and a force for stability. It strikes me that this is not the, you know, an isolated fight that is going to bubble up over the course of the next few months as any number of deals that might have been agreed before the pandemic start to unravel. How is this particular moment going to ripple out across sort of deal making land? You're right, of course. This isn't even the first skirmish of this kind to break out. About a month ago, a private equity firm called Sycamore Partners ended up withdrawing from a deal to buy Victoria's Secret, the lingerie retailer from its parent, L Brands. And they eventually resolved this amicably and reached a settlement in which they both walked away. But there was some legal action there in which, uh, at first, Sycamore said the reason that it didn't have to close the deal was that L Brands had promised that it was going to carry on operating the Victoria's Secret business in the same way that it had in the past. And Sycamore objected, look, you've not run it the same way as you did in the past. You furloughed workers, closed substantially all your stores. There was never a hint of this before we signed the deal, to which L Brands at the time replied, well, of course, because at the time that we signed the deal, there wasn't a pandemic. And so there's this argument that's going to be repeated in the coming months. In this long contract that you sign when you sell a business, there's normally a clause that says, 
we won't do anything major in between signing this deal with you and you taking the keys. We'll just carry on running things smoothly as we always have, and then you'll take over and decide what to do. And that's a very standard clause that's in every one of these contracts. But the meaning of it in present circumstances is going to be a running dispute, because obviously every business has completely fundamentally changed the way that it operates in the past month. Even businesses that are still open have done quite drastic things, like uh, limiting the number of people that they let inside and installing special equipment and changing staffing and so on. And many, many businesses have just closed their doors completely. Does that constitute running the business in the ordinary course? Well, the buyers are often going to be saying, no, you've completely changed what you, the way you operate this business. That's a violation of the, of the contract that we signed and therefore we don't have to close. The sellers are going to say, running a business in the ordinary course does not mean waking up with a blindfold every morning and doing the exact things that you did yesterday. It means waking up, taking stock of the situation, and responding to it in broadly the same way that you would have done yesterday. And so running a business in the ordinary course in an emergency can mean closing it. That's what the sellers will say. And these clauses have never really come up for dispute in right. court before. So we don't know where judges are going to land in this debate. Can I ask, do you think that this is going to change private equity in the way private equity money is invested? Private equity firms have often had a reputation for being very transactional. They do the right thing in the moment to maximize their narrow financial interests. This goes, I think, not just for private equity firms, but for financial investors generally. If the only thing that you care about is financial returns, then often in every situation that you're in, there's quite a simple calculus that you can use to decide what to do. It's just the thing that, that results in you making the most money fastest. That's not how all business runs. You know, if you're a, there are businesses that make strategic decisions that make no financial sense in the short term, but that they believe will make the business stronger in the long run. And financial investors like private equity firms have a reputation for never doing this. It, it may be unfair, but that's the reputation. It doesn't help their efforts to overcome this reputation if we now get a lot of instances where they've talked a good game about being long-term partners and you know decade-long investors and uh, all of this sort of thing. And then we get a flurry of these partnerships coming to a dismal and premature end. I don't know whether this one deal in itself will change everything. But if in this crisis we get a lot of behaviour that's rational, but that people think of as having quite a narrow investment horizon, then it may be a very long time before people believe again these Wall Street players' promises of long-term partnerships. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thanks so much. Check out the show notes for this episode to find further reading on deal-making during the pandemic. And before we go, the FT is offering 30 days of free access to our Coronavirus Business Update newsletter. It's an email briefing that comes out a few times a week, and it tells you everything you need to know about how the pandemic is changing global markets, business, and our workplaces. To sign up, just go to ft.com slash behind the money COVID, or you can follow the link in the show notes. This episode was produced by Oluwakemi Aladesui. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.